heaven, before the creation of our world 6,000 years ago, there already was a seven-branch candlestick. God already was the light of the whole entire universe. Isn't that true? He has to be. Think about all these other intelligent beings. Who's their light? Creator. Who do, whose life do they eat? Who's the bread of life for them? What's well, Jesus? Altar of incense. Who's the one that they intercede with? Whose merits is the basis of worship before even the creation of our world? Would be the merits of God. He's the one where all good comes from. You see, the universe has been worshiping God like this from the time they've been made. And so we have a verse that talks about a sanctuary before Moses is even shown the earthly sanctuary, or the heavenly, to make an earthly. There already is a pattern. There's a pattern even if we don't know there's a pattern. Okay? But what we're going to get to is we'll focus on the word mountain in the next couple slides. But I just wanted to know that Moses believed that God dwelled in a sanctuary before he made a sanctuary on earth. That's important. God has always been in a sanctuary. God has always been worshipped by these angels. God has always been worshipped by these unfallen worlds who existed way before we did. And they worship him for the exact same reasons. His merits. He's the bread of life, so to speak. He's their sustenance. It's him whom they want to eat and be like. He's the one they want to follow. Light of the world, right? <clears throat> Let's see. Somehow it's not working now. Oh, there we go, okay. Now, I want us to re-look at that verse, Exodus 15, 17 and 18. And thou shalt bring them in. Into what? Well, they're going to enter into the promised land, right? This is the time of Moses, and he's, they're going to be led out of Egypt, and they're, he's going to bring them in and plant them in, notice what it says here, in the mountain of thine inheritance. Uh, in the place, O Lord, which thou hast made for thee to dwell in, in the sanctuary, O Lord, which thy hands have established, Jehovah shall reign forever and ever. So in this verse of Exodus, it's, it, there is a reference to the heavenly and to the earthly. Okay, can you see that? The 12 tribes of Israel are going to occupy this entire area of Palestine. Can you name me a chapter in the Bible, for example, the tribe of Gad or the tribe of Naphtali? Is there even a chapter in all the Old Testament that focuses on any one of those divisions? Is there a book in the Old Testament that focuses on the territory of Nathali or the tribe of, of Gad or anything like that. Is there one? Okay. But my point is that there's not a whole chapter on any one of these 12 areas. The entire focus of the Old Testament is not on 12 tribes. It's on what? One mountain. One mountain. Because on that one mountain, 
Mount Moriah, Abraham would be willing to offer his son Isaac because God asked him to. But God would stay his hand because Isaac was pointing forward to when God would offer his only begotten son. You see? The history of the Old Testament isn't about the 12 tribes or the 12 sections of Israel. It's about one singular mountain. Because on that mountain was Moses, or I mean Abraham, willing to offer his son. And on that mountain was the earthly sanctuary, a pattern of the heavenly. What is the most important thing that happened on that mountain? Jesus died for us. You see, when it comes to human history, when it comes even to the history of Israel, and you got evangelical churches, and they're all talking about how Israel is supposed to regain the area of Palestine. Well, the entire Old Testament hardly even mentions this whole area, unless there's a battle there or something. The Old Testament's interested not in the whole territory of Babylon, or Babylon, of Palestine. It's interested in one mountain. Because on that one mountain, our eternal destiny rests. And even in the book of Revelation, the book of Revelation mentions two mountains. Remember which ones these are? Mount Zion. And there's one other mountain. And it's the word Armageddon, which means Mount Mageddon. And in the end, people are going to find themselves on one of two mountains. If you're found on Mount Zion, you're going to be what? You're going to be saved. But if you're found on Mount Megiddo, which is not a literal place, but it's symbolizing the other mountain that people congregate to, that in Mount Megiddo, Armageddon, is where people will be destroyed. This mountain, and so God's going to bring them in. He's going to plant them, not through the whole territory. He's not What he wants to plant in them is the meaning behind this mountain. He wants to plant in their hearts the prophecy of a coming Messiah who's going to die for their sins. Is that right? Because that means everything. Who cares about geography and owning a building or lands? It's what happens on this mountain that's important. And yet evangelical Christianity focuses on building a physical third temple, focuses on them regaining the land. They talk military, they talk politics, and they're missing the whole point because the whole Old Testament is just about one place, a mountain. Okay. Now, let's focus on the word pattern. And in reference to, oh, this is an interesting point. Who's, who's actually seen the heavenly sanctuary? Well, Moses saw it, right? And look that thou make them after the pattern which was what? Showed thee in the mount. What about Daniel? If we look there, we'll find references to Daniel. And Daniel beheld, and there was the Ancient of Days the Father. And there was all these billions of angels, and he sees the wheels of burning fire. And he's watching this because he's watching the Father move from the holy place in heaven to the to most holy place. And the books are open. He's watching this. And the judgment is set. And then he's watching, and a, a cloud of angels takes Jesus and escorts him from the holy place into the most holy place, and now the judgment can begin. And he saw, could you imagine seeing the throne room of God? And then you got John. Notice this. And after this I looked, and behold, 
a door was opened in heaven. And John got to see what was behind that door. What was behind that door? Heaven, the throne room of God. Not just the universe. He saw the holy place. He saw Jesus even walking amongst the the seven branch candlesticks, right? He saw the Ark of the Covenant, right? He sees the Ten Commandments. This is amazing. Who else saw the heavenly sanctuary? Ellen White. The Lord gave me a view of the heavenly sanctuary, and that's Life Sketches 95, Be Fleet, Early Writings, 251, 252. It's not the only references. But when you put all this together, the four people in human history who saw, literally saw, God's throne room. Moses and Daniel represent the law and the prophets. That's the Old Testament. What does John represent? The New Testament. What does Ellen White represent? The spirit of prophecy. Now, to me it's amazing when you think about the history of the Hebrews, they could say our leader is the only person on the planet that's seen what? God's throne room. Could you imagine that? That's amazing. And, and when, we t- when people put down the spirit of prophecy, it's like, are you serious? Do you realize who this per- what this person saw? They, she saw what only three other people throughout 6,000 years of human history have ever seen. Like Moses, like Daniel, like the beloved John. She falls in this category of four people. And I'm telling you, friends, God has instructed us and given us light on the Bible and the spirit of prophecy, and he's led these people who've seen more than any other pair of human eyes have ever seen. And we would do well to be instructed this way. David, then David gave to Solomon, his son, the pattern of the porch, and of the houses thereof. So this is now the physical temple, not the portable one that Moses built, but the permanent one. And the houses thereof, and of the upper chamber thereof, and the inner parlors thereof, and of the place of the mercy seat, and the pattern of all that he had by what? The Spirit. Who showed David how to build this thing? The Holy Spirit did. Is it, was there any part of it that David came up with by himself? It was only what he was shown through the Holy Spirit. All this, said David, the Lord made me understand in writing by his hand upon me even all the works of this this pattern. And in this short sermon so far, we've realized that everything has has a pattern and all has a purpose. You are patterned after being made in God's image and you have a purpose. There's a reason God's made us this way. So Moses was shown this. We see this. We have such a high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. And then this is leading into the earthly sanctuary, which serves now, quote, unto the example and shadow of heavenly things, as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle. For see, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern shown to thee in the mount. So Moses wasn't just handed some blueprints. He saw it. He saw the truth. Okay? So, 
The sanctuary on earth was used to illustrate the heavenly. Is that a true statement? Absolutely. The earthly sanctuary and its services were merely shadows of things in heaven. Is that right? The heavenly sanctuary, if the sanctuary, heavenly sanctuary did not exist, then the earthly could not be a what? So right now, I'm looking at my shadow. How is it possible that I have a shadow? Because I'm real. If I wasn't real, there's no shadow. So when the earthly becomes a shadow of the heavenly, that means it what? It has to exist. And here's the tragedy. In 18, leading up to 1844, our people are preaching that Christ is coming, Christ is coming. Though the event was incorrect, but the time prophecy was correct. October 22nd, 1844. And even after the disappointment, Hiram Edson's walking out in a cornfield with Crozier after the disappointment. They're going to go out there and encourage the brethren. And as they're walking through the cornfield, Crozier keeps walking and he's talking to Hiram Edson. It's like, well, he's not there anymore. He's, oh, he's back here. And what's happening with Hiram Edson? He stops. Why is he stopping? And he's looking up in the sky. What's he seeing? He sees the heavenly sanctuary. He sees that Christ wasn't coming to the earth. He was coming to the heavenly sanctuary. And so the day after the disappointment, we were a people who then then followed Jesus into the heavenly sanctuary, which is, which is real. And the other churches introduced to this didn't follow. You know why they didn't want to follow? Because if they accepted this Advent message that there actually is two apartments in heaven, that this is real, then they'd walk into that holy place and they'd have to admit that in walking in the most holy place, there's a judgment. For who? God's people. But these other churches don't want to believe that Christians are being judged. Just the wicked. The other reason they didn't want to follow Jesus in the most holy place is because what's in that Ark of the Covenant? The Ten Commandments. As God wrote them. And what's the fourth one say? Keep the Sabbath, the Seventh-day Sabbath. Because if they follow Jesus in the most holy place they would have to preach what we're preaching. They would have to preach that there's a judgment coming, not a thousand years of peace, a judgment coming. And they'd have to all start keeping what day? The seventh day. But they weren't willing to do that, so they rejected the message, and that's when they became the fallen churches of Babylon. Because they didn't accept something that is real. Now, we may believe it's real, but we've got to spend time thinking about this pattern that's real and what it means to me because every pattern has a, has a purpose. Jesus must be my light, and I must be filled with the Holy Spirit, the seven-branch candelabra, so that I can reflect His light in my life. I have to eat with this bread of life or I don't make it in this world. I will not have the proper nutrition and strength to face evil. And I need Christ's intercession for me. I need to commune with God in prayer and base it all on His merits because I have how many? None. Not even one. Not one merit to recommend my prayer even to God. I can't even pray to God based on anything I've done and it would never reach this ceiling. Go beyond this. 
But Christ's merits reaches, takes my prayer, takes it all the way to the Father. How far away is that? I have no idea. But God's present. He hears our prayers through Christ. This is all very real. We have to keep practicing what these, this real furniture represents. This is why we've been studying the sanctuary for a couple months or longer. For Christ has not entered into the holy place made with hands, not something that man made, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself. He actually did enter into a holy place in heaven, now to appear in the presence of God. You notice what that's saying? There is a real heavenly sanctuary. There is a real holy place, and Jesus went into it to do what? Minister for us. So whatever he's doing and ministering for us, we need to be cooperating with that. We need to know what he's doing And I feel really bad about these other churches because they rejected this message, but they don't know what Jesus is doing because they failed to follow him there. And by not following the pattern, it's kind of like what I was talking about, developing this creationist therapy. If you break the laws, there's a consequence. Isn't that right? Every disease has a cause. And all the causes are a result of not something that God failed to do, but in our failure to connect with him and to be obedient to the laws of our being. Every time we break one of them, there's a consequence. Now, God will forgive us of breaking them, but we get right back up and we depend on him to now start keeping them. This is our only way out of here, right? Is to follow the pattern. But as fallen human beings, who do we usually who do we mostly follow? Generally we follow our own opinions, right? And that opinions of men. Where does that get us? Because that's a pattern too. You pattern your thoughts after the thoughts of other men, where's that going to take you? We have to pattern our thoughts after the thoughts of God. That's what we were created for. Solomon wrote, this is a beautiful statement, 1 Kings 8, 27. But will God indeed dwell upon the earth? And I don't think he's saying this in a doubtful way. I think he's just so amazed by this. Behold, the heaven and heaven of heavens cannot contain thee. How much less this house that I have built. Isn't that an amazing thought? The heavens, the universe, which is expanding faster than the speed of light, cannot contain God. And to think that God would tabernacle in our presence in a room that's 10 cubits by 10 cubits by 10 cubits in a most holy place. What's that tell you about God? What did he create us for? How are we patterned? Are we patterned for what? What are we patterned for with God? To be in his presence. To be in communion with God. You were not made to live a life independent of God. That's not how you were made. You were patterned to be in communion with God. Think of this beautiful story. I have a couple of Bible studies where we're going through the book of Genesis. And, and Abraham, this is where Jesus and two angels 
they visit Abraham, and they're going to tell him about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham doesn't know that it's Jesus right away, but he brings them in based on his hospitality. And try and imagine this. You're sitting at a table, and and across from you, Paul, you invited these three visitors, and across from you is, is Jesus, the creator of the universe. Can you imagine that? That the creator of the universe is having a meal with you. And he's sitting right across the table from you. What kind of God do we serve? You see? So when, when Jesus knocks in the door of our heart, what should we do? We should let him in. And now that you've let him in, what are you going to do? Can I prepare a meal for you? You welcome him into your home. Just like Abraham welcomed his three heavenly visitors. And you talk with him, and you sup with him, because it's real. You see, when Enoch walked with God, he knew God in a way that people only theoretically knew about God. He actually did know God. He actually did commune with God. And Abraham was the friend of God, and he communed with God. He literally had a meal with God. Can we do the same? Can we find a time and a place to sit down with God every day and commune with him? We can. We were patterned to do that. That's being in agreement with how God made you and how he made me. Does that make sense? Isaiah 57, 15, For saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity. I love that statement. Whose name is holy. I dwell in high and holy place, in the high and holy place, with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit, to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. So imagine this, putting these two verses together with Solomon and this one, with Isaiah. God, the heavens of heavens cannot contain God. Yet, as Solomon understood, God would dwell in this most holy place apartment. And God inhabiteth eternity, and yet this verse tells us that God dwells with those who have what? If you have a contrite spirit, what does that mean? Huh? Repentant. If I am not repentant, am I working against the pattern? If I'm not repentant, is it going to make it more less, less likely that I commune with God? But if I'm of a contrite heart and I'm repentant, God, is there anything else in my life I need to to ask forgiveness for. You see, because along with the contrite spirit, you have a humble, a humble heart. Is it important to have a humble heart to be formed in the pattern of Jesus Christ? Yeah, because pride is what would keep us from following the pattern, to be recreated. So every day we should have a contrite heart and a humble spirit and pray, Father, I want to be recreated in the pattern of Jesus Christ. And I'm praying right now that you would gift me a contrite 
and humble spirit. Because, Father, if there's something in my life that I haven't been willing to give up, please impress my heart to give it up. And, Father, if there's pride in my heart, let it be crucified. Let me have the humility of Jesus. And in that way, you and I can experience fellowship with God, the one who made us. Does that make sense? God's not asking you to do some great thing. But he is asking you to do the hardest thing. Die to self. Trust that he will refashion you into the pattern. Just trust him. Okay? And so when we talk about how the tabernacle on earth was a pattern of the heaven, God gave us another example of something from heaven that's a, te- that's a pattern. And it's, of course, Jesus. Notice the words here. And the word was made flesh, and it what? Dwelt. And the Greek word could have been the word tabernacled among us. And we beheld his glory, and the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Notice these parallels. Moses' wilderness tabernacle moved about 40 times in the wilderness. Jesus came from heaven, just like the heavenly sanctuary is the pattern of which there was a copy. Jesus came from heaven, and just like that earthly sanctuary was moved about 40 times, like it didn't have anywhere, what about Jesus' life as he tabernacled with us? He had nowhere to lay his head. You see the similarity there? Let's look at some more comparisons here. Moses' wilderness tabernacle was not ornate, but simple. Christ came in such a way that men were not attracted by his outward form. Is that right? So there's a parallel by looking at the earthly sanctuary and the life of Jesus, both of which are of heaven as our pattern. The earthly tabernacle was where men met God. It is through Jesus that we are able to meet with God. Is that right? Okay. So ultimately, Jesus is the real one. And the earthly tabernacle did point to Jesus as the true. It was in the tabernacle where God's law was preserved. Is that right? Right there in the heart of the most holy place? Throughout his life, Jesus kept his father's commandments because in the life of Jesus was where the Ten Commandments were perfectly preserved. Just like in the earthly tabernacle, right? As written by God's own hand. So Jesus allowed the Father to empower him to live a life that was in perfect obedience to that same law. Wow. The wilderness tabernacle was built by a prophet Moses, and Christ came as lamb and prophet when he tabernacled among us. Jesus would say, destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it up. Then said the Jews, 46 years was this temple and building, and will thou rear it up in three days? But Jesus spake of the temple of his body. Because while this earthly tabernacle is a pattern of the heavenly for us to study, ultimately it all points to us to look at what pattern? Jesus himself. Jesus is the pattern we're to follow. Okay? And Jesus came from heaven, and when he said, destroy this temple, and that temple was what? But a pattern of the heavenly. Jesus has shown us the Father, and he would be, of course, resurrected the third day. I came down from where? From heaven, original. Not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. And then Peter would say, For hereunto were you called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us a what? An example or a pattern that we should follow his steps. Christ is the pattern. 
There was a heavenly sanctuary that Moses saw and served as the pattern for the earthly sanctuary. To every particular, there was nothing in the earthly sanctuary that man devised. And Jesus is our heavenly pattern that we're to follow in how much? Every particular is the same way. We have to allow God to teach us. But you know, there's a Jesus of the culture. Where the culture has patterned a, a cultural Jesus patterned after evangelicalism. And that Jesus is going to pass the Sunday law. That Jesus is going to tell you you can't buy and sell. But it's not the heavenly Jesus. It's a pattern of man reframing who Jesus is. And the reality is, he's the true. We're the ones that have to change. But we're not left with no pattern. We're left with a true pattern. To every particular. So when you study the life of Jesus, you study and you say, okay, what did he do? What did he say? How did he see people? How did he treat people? And you study his life point by point because he's the, he's the pattern, friend. And when we have this kind of Christianity where, yes, I believe there's a Jesus. Yes, I believe he died for me. It's all true. But it's like missing a lot of pieces of the puzzle. And I need a, I need a pattern. Do you need a pattern? I need a pattern. I need to be told what to do, shown what to become. Okay. Prior to the coming of the Messiah, the Hebrews could read the character of God uh, through the sanctuary. You know, he's the light of the world, the bread of life. We talked about that. Uh, prayer, of course, upon his merits, and of course, looking at the most holy place, that God in character is this perfect blend of mercy and justice. And I mean a perfect blend. You know, in, in a lot of churches, if somebody did something wrong in this church, you will soon discover who's on the mercy side and who's on the justice side. Right? On the mercy side, oh, let's just kind of, you know, under the rug. And others are saying, ah, oh, it needs to be this fellowship before the sun goes down. If you had, going down State Street, the Seventh-day Adventist Church of Mercy and the Seventh-day Adventist Church of Justice, which one are you going to attend? Mercy. Mercy, mercy, mercy. We want mercy, but remember, Jesus is the perfect blend of both. And that's whenever we face every situation in life, we want to pray, Father, help me to be 100% merciful and 100% just. So they bring the woman caught in adultery, and Jesus says, where are thy accusers? Mercy. But then he says, go sin no more. Accountability. You see, we're always trying to win people, but you can only win people of mercy and justice. And by and large, all of society seems to be split this way. We have parents who are more indulgent and parents who are just really strict. And there's very little love. We see it in our political system. you got one party that leads to the mercy side, and you got a, another party that leads a little bit more to the justice side. It's just that our whole society seems to be permeated, but we don't have a balance. 
And Jesus wasn't balancing, I shouldn't have used that word, balancing mercy and justice. He was a blend of them. And this is the pattern. So when somebody crosses you the wrong way, what's the pattern? Be both. That's the pattern. And we want to follow the pattern. It takes time to follow the pattern. But if we're going in the right direction, day by day we become more like him. He's not expecting you to be exactly like Jesus today. But he is looking for a people who are so hungry to be like the pattern that they are preparing to receive the latter rain. The reason we're still here is there's never been enough Seventh-day Adventists who took seriously to be 100% like the pattern. We know which day is the Sabbath. We know what happens when a person dies. But you see, that's only part of the picture. The pattern is the life of Jesus being lived out through us so that we're this people in the end of time that's 100% merciful, 100% just, loving at all times, and always telling the truth at all times, right? And when he has that people, it's going to go, friends. There's no reason to hold back the four winds anymore because he's got a people he can trust who've been following the pattern, becoming more like Jesus, and now they can face the last part of verse history. Is that right? So we need to all spend a thoughtful hour each day. We've been told this. Contemplate the life of Christ, a thoughtful hour each day. That doesn't mean you have to sit in one spot and do that. But you can spend reading 20, 30 minutes of Jesus' life and then keep repeating it throughout the day as you think about Jesus' life because you're thinking about the pattern. The woman at the well. Uh, all these different stories. And you say, I want to be, be like that. I'm tired of being like this. I want to be like that. I want to be like the pattern. Okay? There's one more verse. There's a verse coming up here I wanted to show you. But this is an important verse. Know you not that what? You know, we, we've been talking about an earthly tabernacle. Jesus tabernacled with us, but you realize what? You're the temple of God. And that the God, the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. And this, is, this becomes important to us because it's in the temple where God dwelt. And so God ultimately wants to take up residence inside each one of us. And if we can wake up every morning thinking about, you know, I need to be the temple of the Holy Spirit today. So Father, grace me with your presence. And he says, okay, I will. But what are you going to do to cooperate for that to happen? Is there something we have to do? Yeah, we need to take time to spend with him, right? If I ask him to take up residence in this temple, the Holy Spirit, should I be praying? Should I be studying? Should I be witnessing? You see, there's a cooperation that allows him to dwell in us. It's not just saying the words. It's what we do with it. It's the actions that follow that allow that to happen. Let me just find this one last verse. And I'll end with this. You know, we talked about how important in the previous sermon about the, the burnt offering, dedicating all of who I am to God each day, meal offering, dedicate all that I have to God that day, and peace offering. These were three offerings that happened every day. 
And that means they should be happening every day in our life. That when I wake up in the morning, I want to concentrate all of who I am. I want to concentrate my mind, my thoughts. And Father, if they ever steer away from your will, bring them back. Father, I want to dedicate all that I have. I don't want anything I own to be evidence that I'm just living some sinful, temporal, selfish life. I realize that everything I have from you is a gift from you. So may the things that I own, my time, everything, be evidence that I actually care about people and I care about your work. Is that a fair statement? And then the peace offering. Father, is there anybody I need to make something right with? And Father, I want to, in this peace, I want to give you thanks and I want to give you praise today and every day. And that's all part of the peace offering. And that's part of how we prepare our mind and heart to be a dwelling place for the presence of God. But notice, let me just conclude with this verse. It brings all three of those offerings together in the epistle of John. Hereby perceive we the love of God because he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. That's a good description of a burnt offering, dedicating all of who you are. But whoso hath this world's goods and seeth his brother have need and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelt the love of God in him? My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. That's the meal offering, right? And then look at this one. And hereby we know that we are the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knoweth all things. Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, then have we or peace or confidence toward God, right? Having peace with God, confidence with God, knowing that we are cooperating with them. So my, my prayer here, before we have our closing hymn, closing prayer, is to take time. Maybe next time I'll bring some books on the sanctuary that I can recommend for you to study further in your own personal study. There's some really good books out there that I, I trust to read these authors. There's probably some out there I couldn't recommend. There's going to be some good books out there that you could read, that you can trust reading. you still got to be a Berean, but there are some really good authors within our church that have written on this topic. But I want us to make sure that the reason we exist as a people is because the holy place and the most holy place is real. It's just not a doctrine. It needs to be part of our daily experience. And realize there's a pattern there. There's something to learn that changes me. Not just a new set of doctrines, but my life, the way I think, the way I see and treat people, right? And this is why we study the truth. Our closing hymn is 331. Okay.